RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This sixth meditation is called Everyone, Everywhere, All at Once, and in it I discuss the period from 1850 to the present day, a period of incredible change in which insurance developed from being a luxury product for the few, to become a necessary element of modern life. In so doing, I will complete our story of insurance, a story that started almost 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and ends now with you listening to this meditation on a gadget that is probably insured, in a location that is probably insured, and of course, you too are probably insured, as am I. The question we will seek to answer is this. How did insurance achieve this ubiquity? It is a fascinating story and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. The Matrix and the Reality of Insurance A couple of years ago, I wrote a blog called The Matrix and the Reality of Insurance which was based on the 1999 movie, The Matrix. I know, 24 years ago. If you have never seen the movie, it is not the easiest to explain because it tries, rather too knowingly, to be metaphysical. So the following explanation of the plot is unlikely to help, but here goes anyway. The world we live in is not real. It is a simulated reality. If you hold your hand in front of your face, it is not real. It is just digital code. Your eyes are digital code. Your brain is digital code. You are digital code. And the 3D world which you apparently inhabit is just a digital 3D framework known as the matrix. So where is your actual physical body? Well, it is lying in a bath of gloop connected to a mainframe and generating energy to power the machines that control us. This is, of course, a bad situation. So who is going to save humanity from their baths of gloop? Well, obviously, it's Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, looking effortlessly cool in long black leather trench coats and sunglasses. In brief, it is enjoyable tosh. Anyway, at one point, one of the characters 
Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, says, slowly and portentously, The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out of the window or turn on your television. And it struck me that this was the perfect description for insurance. Try it. Try it now. Look around you. Is there anything that you can see that is not insured? Insurance is everywhere. Yes, even now, in this very room. In 2023, insurance is, and here I apologise for mixing my movie references and also for slightly altering the title of the movie, but insurance is for everyone, everywhere, all at once. The variety and availability of insurance now, particularly in the more developed economies, is staggering. For example, if you look at the US website for Chubb and I could have chosen any insurer, but that was the one that happened to pop into my mind first. If you look at Chubb's website, these are the insurance policies that they offer. For individuals, there is homeowners insurance, condos and co-ops insurance, renters insurance, home appliances and equipment insurance, car insurance and classic car insurance. There's insurance for jewellery, art, wine and spirits and your collections, whatever that may mean. I once had a collection of small china owls, but I suspect that it doesn't refer to that. It's probably more designed for collections of Louis XVI furniture or 17th century Netsuki or that sort of thing. Anyway, I've digressed. In addition, there's personal umbrella excess liability, group personal excess and employment practices liability insurance. There's cyber insurance, cyberbullying and identity theft management insurance. And of course, there's our old favourites, flood hurricane, wildfire, hail and earthquake insurance. Not to mention supplemental life and health protection and employer-provided benefits, plus travel insurance, boat and yacht insurance, farm office insurance and so on and so forth. And that's just for individuals. For businesses, there are 21 separate industry sectors ranging from aerospace to wineries, And within those sectors, there are 25 categories of insurance, including environmental and workers' compensation and such like, all of which have subcategories. And within those subcategories, there may be separate products. Wow. Now that is a lot of separate insurance products. There really is a policy for everyone, everywhere, all at once. But it wasn't always that way. Let's go back for a moment to 1850. Back then, the total number of insurance products on the market would have been, well, let's let's count them. Um, Marine, um, fire, fire, yeah. Um, Life, um, I think that might be it. So three. Well, uh, possibly four, because in the couple of years before 1850, Three insurance companies had been founded to provide accident insurance for the 64 million passengers on Britain's railways. And of course, that, that, there was reinsurance, uh, but even that was in its nascent stages, so, and, and we'll come back to that later. But largely, it was marine, fire, and life insurance. And the world leader for all three lines of business was Britain. So, in contrast to everyone, everywhere, all at once. It was more hardly anyone, mostly in Britain and not very often. So how did insurance develop from that 
to today's global industry. This is what I will consider in this meditation. In so doing, I will touch upon numerous topics, colonialism, nationalisation, geopolitics, regulation, product creation, demographics, technological change, each of which probably deserves far more time than I'll be able to give it. And in truth, I will probably need to do another series of meditations at some stage focused solely on the evolution of insurance in the 20th century. But in this meditation, my aim is simply to provide a broad and sweeping narrative from 1850 to the present day, explaining how insurance evolved to fill almost every niche of modern life and how it expanded to what, at least in some countries, amounts to near ubiquity. Everyone, everywhere, all at once. Chapter 2. Controlled by the Few And of those three, everyone, everywhere, all at once, we are going to start with the story of how insurance came to be everywhere. In 1851, London hosted the Great Exhibition, or, to give it its full title, the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations. And, as an aside, as evidence that some things are not as modern as we might believe, the Great Exhibition had an official corporate sponsor, Schweppes, which had been around since 1783 and was the world's first soft drinks company. The Great Exhibition was a remarkable success. It had six million visitors, equivalent to a third of the adult population of Britain. Visitors included Charles Darwin, Michael Faraday, Charlotte Bronte, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, and, rather improbably, Karl Marx. The event made a surplus of £186,000 that was used to found the three great museums of South Kensington, the Victoria and Albert, the Science and the Natural History. The Great Exhibition was emblematic of Britain's position of dominance in the world, not just the fact that it was the leading industrial nation, but also that it was the leading colonial power. In just the previous ten years, the empire had grown to include New Zealand and the Punjab, and that expansion continued throughout the second half of the 19th century. Even as late as 1919, the British Empire continued to grow with the addition of Germany's former colonies of Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, parts of Cameroon and modern-day Togo and Tanzania. And between 1820 and 1870, Britain's exports increased tenfold. But of all its exports, the most important was its people. In total, 20 million people exited Britain. Now, admittedly, this first Brexit took place over a very long period, from around the 1650s to the 1950s. But to put that figure of 20 million in context, the population of the United Kingdom in 1851 was only 27.9 million. So you could argue that nearly an entire second population of Britain left their green and pleasant land, at least in part, to spread the gospel of British superiority around the globe. And in the latter half of the 19th century, they took with them their high-minded religiosity, 
their emotional constipation and, more relevantly for this podcast, their British-style insurance. In a strange echo of the way in which Italian merchant insurers had first introduced insurance to London, so now British insurers introduced insurance to a wider world. Of course, I'm not saying that it was only the British insurers who did this. There were German and Dutch insurers, and at times US insurers and others, but it was led by the British, and predominantly by its insurers of commerce, so the fire insurers and, of course, the marine underwriters of Lloyd's of London. Some of this expansion had already occurred in the first half of the 19th century. The first fire insurers had arrived in India in the 1820s, and in South Africa two or three decades after that. But it was the second half of the century that really saw the British insurers spread rapidly to Latin America, the Near East, and the treaty ports of China and Japan. As the German historian Peter Borscheid says, From the middle of the 19th century, the British set about forcing through universal free trade and releasing market forces with almost crusade-like devotion. This crusade-like devotion coincided with, or perhaps was precipitated by, two transformational developments in global interconnectedness. The first was the telegraph. In 1851, it took 12 days to send a letter from London to New York, 33 days to Mumbai, 45 to Singapore, and 73 days to Sydney. But in 1866, the first intercontinental telegraph cable was laid across the Atlantic. Just four years later, there was a telegraph connection to India, and two years after that, to Australia. And then in around 1894, telegraph technology made a quantum leap with the invention of the wireless telegraph by Marconi. But just as important as the telegraph, in 1869, the 120-mile-long Suez Canal was opened between the Mediterranean and Red Seas, reducing travel times to Southeast Asia by around a fortnight. And as a result, the story of the last quarter of the 19th century was a story of growth. Between 1880 and 1910, global trade exploded from just below £3 billion to around Eight billion pounds. Ports such as Buenos Aires, Cape Town, Mumbai, Singapore, and Shanghai grew rapidly, with new railways, stations, banks, hotels, and local businesses, all of which needed insurance. And this insurance business, which was commercial in nature, so marine and fire, largely went to British insurers and underwriters because they had more money more experience and more expertise. Insurance was, therefore, increasingly everywhere. But it was insurance controlled by the few. Yes, you could buy insurance in Africa, Asia and South America, but it was often insurance sold by British insurers. But there is a second story, a subplot, if you will, that would become much more of a main plot in the 20th century. Because alongside the international insurers, some countries, particularly those in Latin America, started developing domestic insurance companies 
focused on life and accident insurance, lines of business that the international commercial insurers of Britain and Europe were less interested in. And in the second half of the 19th century, the country that probably did most to develop its own domestic insurance industry was Japan. Japanese students even travelled to Europe to learn about actuarial science, and when they returned home, they created the foundations for the current Japanese insurance industry. But overall, during the 1800s, the dominant story was of the power of the European insurers, and particularly the British insurers, who spread their influence internationally. And nowhere was this more evident than in the aftermath of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, a topic that I discussed on the Insurance Covered podcast with Meredith Brasher in January 2023. The San Francisco earthquake and the subsequent fires destroyed 514 city blocks and around 3,000 people died. The total estimate of damage, in today's money, was around $10 billion. Only around a third of this was insured, but even that involved approximately 250 insurance companies, including US, British, German, Swiss, Danish and Austrian insurers and reinsurers, plus, bizarrely, one solitary Bulgarian reinsurer. As Peter Borscheid puts it, on the eve of the First World War, primary insurers and reinsurers had established a dense net around the globe, with London as its indisputed centre. And therein lay the problem. Much of this global edifice of insurance was built on the sand of Britain's continued global dominance. And that sand was shifting. Chapter 3. Dulce et decorum est. On 28th of June 1914, in Sarajevo, a 19-year-old Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip shot and killed Sophie, Duchess of Hohenberg, and her husband, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. And that moment started a chain of events that would change the world forever. A month later, on 28th of July, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia and started shelling Belgrade. Within three days, Serbia's ally, Russia, was at war with Austria-Hungary's ally, Germany. Two days after that, Germany occupied Luxembourg and declared war on France. And then, on 4th of August, Germany invaded Belgium, which forced the hand of Belgium's ally, Britain. By 5th of August 1914, Britain too was at war. Over the next four years, the First World War, as it became known, saw the deaths of 9 million soldiers with another 23 million wounded. 5 million civilians died of military action, hunger or disease. Millions more died of genocide. As Peter Borscheid says, the myth of Europe's advanced culture exploded on the battlefields of France and Russia. And alongside the numbers are the words, on this occasion expressed with chilling brutality and embittered sarcasm, by Wilfred Owen. If, in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear 
At every jolt, the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Sadly, despite Wilfred Owen's plea for sanity, that phrase, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country, could have been used to sum up the next 60 years of global slaughter, national conflict and international disintegration. In contrast to the aggressive process of internationalisation in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the period from 1914 to 1973 saw an equally aggressive period in which individual countries asserted their sovereign will. In this period, nearly every major geopolitical event drove countries apart rather than together. Of course, it started with the First World War, but then there was the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the subsequent rise of international communism. Then, in the 1920s, the financial pressures of the interwar period climaxed with the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. Then, of course, in the 1930s in Europe, there was the rise of fascism and Nazism, which led to the Second World War from 1939 to 1945. Then, after the war in 1949, there was the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And of course, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, there was the post-war independence movements of the former British and French colonies. And this inevitably had an effect on the development of insurance. Insurance entered a chrysalis stage. And what emerged in 1973 bore little resemblance to the insurance system that had existed in 1914. The international system of insurance was dismantled as countries closed their doors to foreign insurers. Between the wars, this included the Soviet Union, Turkey, Iran, China, Germany and Japan. Even the British and the French cut themselves off from the international community and restricted much of their overseas trade to their colonies. And after the Second World War, this trend away from internationalisation towards the powers of the nation-state, where, if anything, it became more pronounced. First, there was the ideological divide between communism and the West. But more widely, the, the dozens of countries that attained independence, once freed from colonial restraints, prioritised the development of their domestic insurance industries. In order to create the space for domestic insurers, the existing insurers, often British, were kicked out. As just one example, in its annual report in 1970, the Norwich Union stated that it had been forced to withdraw from 22 countries. In 1956, the percentage of premiums for British insurers that came from overseas business was 69.7%. By 1985, less than 30 years later, it was just 50.7%. And alongside ideology and independence, there was a surprising third factor that discouraged international cooperation amongst insurers. That third factor was the internal combustion engine. The motor car had created a new and huge class of business for American and European insurers. 
So why chase after foreign premiums when there was easy money to be made at home? As a result, something very strange, at least to modern eyes, happened to insurance. In the 1960s, global premium income trebled. But in most markets, the number of foreign insurers fell in both absolute and relative terms. Insurance had become a largely domestic enterprise. And in so doing, it was no longer an international industry centred on Britain. It was a series of national industries. Insurance was everywhere. Chapter 4. Floating Above the Geopolitical Storms Of course, the analysis in the last two chapters oversimplifies a complex story. For a start, even in the post-war period, London remained as the international insurance hub for marine and aviation insurance. For those risks, nowhere else was able to compete with Lloyds of London. And another form of insurance that remained international in nature was reinsurance, which largely floated above the geopolitical storms that affected most other forms of insurance. In fact, let's take a moment to summarise the history of reinsurance from 1850 to 2023, because it is a fascinating tale in its own right. Reinsurance is, of course, the insurance of insurers. And insurers purchase reinsurance for exactly the same reasons that the rest of us purchase normal insurance. We buy insurance when we feel financially vulnerable, and so do insurers. If they feel as though they have insufficient capital and thus may be overexposed, either on an individual risk or more broadly, they will seek to mitigate their exposure by purchasing reinsurance. In that respect, there is no particular magic to reinsurance. It is to insurers what, say, motor insurance or property insurance is to us. And reinsurance has been around for almost as long as insurance has been around. The earliest policy of reinsurance of which we are aware is from 1370, so just 27 years after the earliest known insurance policy between Avaducto Guillermo and Amigetto Pinello that we discussed in Meditation 3. Of course, over the years, the methods by which an insurer has mitigated its risk have taken different forms. For example, in Britain, reinsurance was generally provided by other direct insurers. As such, an insurer was often both an insurer and a reinsurer. This is also how it worked in the US and throughout most of Europe. But Germany went down a different route. In 1842, a large part of Hamburg was destroyed by fire. 1,700 residential buildings were destroyed along with more than 100 warehouses, seven churches, two synagogues, 60 schools and various public buildings. There is still a street in Hamburg called Brandsende, meaning end of fire, which marks the location where the fire was finally extinguished after three days of burning. The German fire insurers suffered huge losses. They therefore looked for ways to protect themselves against similar catastrophic events in the future. But instead of reinsuring with their competitors, as happened in Britain, they decided to go down a different route. They decided that what they needed was a specialist reinsurance company. 
So, in 1846, the first professional reinsurer, Cologne Re, was chartered, followed by others, most notably Munich Re in 1880. In 1861, neighbouring Switzerland had its own devastating fire. Two-thirds of the city of Glarus, that's 593 buildings, was destroyed. And this devastation was the impetus for the Swiss to adopt the German approach to reinsurance. And two years after the fire in 1863, Swiss Re was founded. The creation of professional reinsurance companies proved to be rather inspired, because you may remember that I talked about a subplot during the period from 1850 through to 1914. The main plot during that period was the dominance of the international insurers based in Britain and Europe, who focused on commercial risks. But the subplot related to the creation of domestic insurers who focused on accident and life insurance, things that the international insurers were less interested in. And then from 1914 to 1973, this subplot, the rise of the domestic insurer, became the main plot. And many of these domestic insurers, because they were new, because they were small, albeit growing, were undercapitalized and were in need of financial protection. So they purchased reinsurance. And in consequence, the German and Swiss reinsurers, Munich Re, Swiss Re and Cologne Re, all flourished. During the World Wars, of course, a proportion of reinsurance business transferred from Germany to Switzerland, which was neutral, but the long-term story for all was one of enormous growth. In 2023, the largest reinsurance company in the world is Munich Re, followed by Swiss Re, with another German company, Hanover Re, in third position. As for the oldest reinsurer, Cologne Re, well, in 2003, it became part of Berkshire Hathaway's General Re, and on 1st of July 2010, it formally changed its name to General Reinsurance AG. All that is now left is a memory, perhaps just a scent of eau de cologne. Re. Chapter 5. One Massive Insurance Scheme So, where have we got to in our story of everyone, everywhere, all at once? Well, by the 1970s, insurance was geographically everywhere. Many countries now had their own insurance industry in one form or another, and this patchwork of national insurers was sewn together by the interweaving threads of the international reinsurers. So that's the everywhere. But what about the everyone? Because in 1850, insurance was a luxury item, even in Britain. If you were poor, the likelihood was that your life was untouched by insurance. Marine insurance was obviously irrelevant. Fire insurance was probably out of reach and life insurance tended to be bought by the upper classes. For the lower classes, the only direct experience of insurance might have been the mutual aid provided by a friendly society. Members would pay a regular premium of a few pennies into a fund that would pay out on the loss of a cow, or for the costs of a funeral, or similar. And for the poorest, this position remained largely unchanged until well into the 1900s. 
and for many parts of the world, of course, it applies even now, which explains the increasing use of micro-insurance throughout the globe, in which very small premiums are paid for various types of insurance, including life, health and property. Micro-insurance fills the same niche as that filled by the friendly societies in Victorian Britain. It allows the poorest to access the benefits of insurance. And according to a paper by researchandmarkets.com, the global micro-insurance market had an estimated market value in 2022 of 72.85 billion US dollars. And that is predicted to grow by 2030 to 121 billion dollars. So micro-insurance is a means by which insurance is reaching people who may never otherwise be touched by insurance. But when considering the spread of insurance to everyone, there is another story to be told, one relating to social insurance. And that story, at least insofar as it relates to Britain, starts on 5th of March 1879 in Rangpur in modern-day Bangladesh, when a son was born to Henry Beveridge and Annette Ackroyd. They gave him the name William Henry Beveridge. Young William was educated at Charterhouse, which was, and is, one of England's leading public schools. Just in case you attempted to send your child there, the current annual fee for a boarder is £44,220. That's £44,220 per year for one child. But the money was clearly worth it because Beveridge moved on seamlessly to Oxford University where he was awarded first-class degrees in two subjects, maths and classics. After leaving university, he became interested in one of the leading issues of the time, social reform. In 1909, the Liberal government had delivered a budget that became known as the People's Budget because it introduced a number of tax measures to finance a progressive social agenda. But Beveridge wanted to go further, and he advocated for old-age pensions and free school meals, and he became an expert in unemployment insurance. After the First World War, Beveridge became a director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and there was a possibility that his career might be nothing more than a footnote of history. But his moment of glory was not far away. During the Second World War, Beveridge worked for Ernest Bevin in the Ministry of Labour. However, Bevin and Beveridge were not, how can one put this politely, on exactly the same wavelength. Bevin was a bull of a man, the precise physical opposite of Beveridge, who was rather gangly in appearance. Indeed, the two were opposites in just about every possible way. Rather than go to Charterhouse, Bevin had left school at the age of 11. Rather than obtain a first at Oxford, Bevin was a founding member of the Transport and General Workers' Union. Whereas Beveridge was an agnostic, Bevin was a Baptist lay preacher. And whereas Beveridge had the clipped patrician tones of his education, Bevin had a broad West Country accent that his colleagues found difficult to understand. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Bevin found Beveridge utterly unbearable. So, in 1941, he edged Beveridge out of the Ministry of Labour into the Ministry of Health, 
where Beveridge became chair of a newly formed committee. And in so doing, Bevin inadvertently guaranteed Beveridge's fame. Because in 1942, at the height of the Second World War, Beveridge's committee wrote a report called Social Insurance and Allied Services, which set out the basis of the welfare state that was subsequently introduced after the war by Clement Attlee's Labour government. The report became known simply as the Beveridge Report. I have an original copy on my shelves behind me. The report proposed that all people of working age should pay a weekly national insurance contribution. In return, benefits would be paid to people who were sick, unemployed, retired or widowed. Beveridge's vision was of one massive insurance scheme set up to benefit the whole population of Britain. So literally everyone. I should point out that Beveridge was not the first to imagine the concept of social insurance. In the UK, national insurance had been around since 1911 and it had been first created, rather improbably, by Otto von Bismarck, the Prussian who masterminded the unification of Germany. Nor was Beveridge's vision of the welfare state the most thorough. That probably occurred later in Japan. But the popularity of the Beveridge report means that his name has forever been linked to the welfare state and the concept of social insurance. It was Beveridge, therefore, who put the everyone into everyone, everywhere, all at once. As a final aside on Beveridge, whilst he sounds like a great fella, he was also a eugenicist. He believed that the human race could be improved by controlling reproduction. Indeed, his vision of the welfare state included the payment of graded child allowances, which, in Beveridge's view, would have encouraged the educated professional classes to have more children and poorer households to have fewer. In other words, yes, he created a welfare system that benefited everyone, but at the same time he wanted that everyone to consist of people more like him and less like, say, Ernest Bevin. Yeah, you can perhaps see why Bevin did not much warm to William Henry Beveridge. Chapter 6. A Story of People With the rise of social insurance, insurance came to everyone. But the 20th century also saw that trend in reverse. Not only did insurance come to everyone, but everyone came to insurance. Because in the 20th century, the story of insurance is the story of people. Let me explain. It took 300,000 years for the world population of Homo sapiens to exceed 1 billion. That landmark was reached in 1804, so 219 years ago. It then took 126 years for the world population to pass 2 billion, and then a mere 30 years to pass 3 billion. Now, I was born in April 1967, and according to an online calculator, I took the total world population to 3,354,187,927. So let's say 3.35 billion, give or take. A mere 56 years later, in 2023, the world population sits at just over 
8 billion people. Now that means, and this is utterly incredible, that means that if you remove the entire population of North America, that's every single person in North America, and every single person in South America, and the whole of Africa, and Europe, and Oceania, and Russia, and Japan, and the Philippines. In fact, if you remove the entire population of literally every country in the world, other than just five countries, India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Indonesia, you would still not get down to the population of the earth on the day of my birth. China and India each have a population now in excess of the entire world population in 1850. Now, this matters because, as I've just said, the story of insurance in the 20th century is a story of people. And that this is a fundamental change because insurance began as the story of commerce. For 400 years, almost all insurance was for marine and for cargo. In the 1700s, much of the newly evolved fire insurance was sold to businesses. However, much of it was also sold to individuals. And of course, in the 1800s, the new life insurers sold policies to individuals. So things were changing. But as at 1850, what was the split between commercial insurance and individual or personal insurance? Well, unfortunately, I have no idea because I can't find that statistic anywhere. My guess, for what it is worth, is that commercial insurance still far exceeded personal insurance. But I do know the figures for 2021. Before I tell you, though, have a guess at the proportion of global premiums that are ascribed to personal lines. So that's life insurance, health insurance, motor, property and other sundry lines. Go on, have a guess. Have a guess. Well, according to the Swiss Re Institute, in 2021, the total of all insurance premiums paid globally was just under 7 trillion US dollars. So hold that figure in mind, 7 trillion US dollars. Of that sum, just over 6 trillion US dollars relates to the insurance of individual people. So that's 6 trillion out of 7 trillion. So if you did make a guess and you said just over 87%, then please pat yourself on the back because you were correct. Now, that 6 trillion US dollars that relates to the insurance of individual people is split as follows. Just under 50% relates to life insurance. Around 30% is health insurance. And the balance relates to motor, property and other personal lines. So the fact that the world population increased from 2 billion in 1930 to 8 billion now is a significant factor in the growth and ubiquity of insurance. Do you know which insurance company is the largest insurance company in the world? It is not AXA or Allianz or AIG. It is not even the combined might of Lloyds of London or even the whole of the London market collectively. It is the US health insurer, United Health. Group Incorporated, which has net premiums of over 226 billion US dollars. 
To put that in context, that is more than the top 10 reinsurance companies combined. So more than Munich Re, Swiss Re, Hanover Re, and seven other reinsurance companies combined. In second and third place are two more US health insurers, Centene Corporation and Elevance Health Inc. There are many stories that can be told about the growth of insurance in the 20th century, but the most obvious one is this. During the course of the last 100 years, insurance has increasingly become personal. Whilst it is true that insurance was birthed in the world of commerce, it lives now in the world of people. And there are a lot more people now than there used to be. Chapter 7. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse This increase in personal lines insurance highlights another change that has occurred in the last hundred or so years in the story of insurance. Insurance now comes in a multitude, possibly even a plenitude, of shapes and forms. In the book of Revelation in the Christian Bible, the apocalypse is heralded by four horsemen, traditionally named as pestilence, war, famine and death. Well, in 2023, you can buy insurance against all four. Health insurance against pestilence, war insurance against war, agricultural insurance against famine and life insurance against death. Even the four horses can be insured. And perhaps an enterprising insurer should insure it all in one policy and market it as Armageddon Combined Insurance. This is the all-at-once element in everyone, everywhere, all at once. Everyone can be insured anywhere in the world doing anything. In 2023, it is difficult to think of any human activity that is beyond the reach of insurance. The breadth and variety of insurance policies is breathtaking. So how did this happen? Well, let's start with Cuthbert Heath, the great Lloyd's underwriter who lived from 1859 to 1939 and is seen as the great innovator of Lloyd's of London. According to the well-known story, in 1889, he was in the process of providing fire insurance for a house when he was asked whether he could also insure against burglary. Burglary insurance had never been offered before, but Heath's response was, why not? This story has been repeated so often and in so many ways, it now has the feel of a myth. But in many respects, whether it actually happened or not is not the point. The power of any myth is that it speaks of some deeper truth. And the truth is that Heath subsequently turned the why-not philosophy, into a reality. Heath created or developed all of these forms of insurance at Lloyd's. Burglary, jeweller's block, all risk, loss of profits, banker's blanket bond, workman's compensation, smallpox if vaccinated, excess of loss, air raid, earthquake and hurricane. As an aside, in honour of Cuthbert Heath, I thought about calling these meditations the Heath Lectures, as a pun on the annual Wreath Lectures organised by the BBC, but I decided that this would be lost on anyone from outside the UK and probably many within, so I didn't. Anyway, when Cuthbert Heath died, the Economist magazine, in its obituary, called him the first man to see the potentialities of insurance in the modern world. 
there are few departments of our modern life which have not been touched by his inventive genius. According to this assessment, Cuthbert Heath was the first to see that the basic insurance model was infinitely malleable, that it could be applied to a myriad of novel situations, that it could apply to just about any risk. Now, I have no doubt that a historian of late 19th and early 20th century insurance will probably discover that Heath was not a unique thinker and that he was merely the best example of the general movement amongst insurers at that time towards innovation. But whether he was on his own or merely one of a pack is, is irrelevant. What matters is that the period from 1850 to 2023 saw insurance first creep and crawl and then leap and sprint into every area of human existence. For 400 years, insurance had been a niche product for mariners. Then, over a period of around 150 years, it moved incrementally into fire insurance and life insurance. But from 1850 onwards, boom! We've already mentioned accident, motor and health insurance, but all of the following lines of business were also invented in this period. Business interruption, pet insurance, mortgage indemnity, credit insurance, aviation, construction or risks, kidnap and ransom, products liability, professional indemnity, nuclear risks, contingency, latent defects insurance, directors and officers, employment practices, legal expenses, medical malpractice, warranty and indemnity, tax liability, cyber insurance, terrorism, space insurance, and a whole host of more niche products such as drone insurance, cloud outage insurance, and the insurance of solar farms. I mentioned those three because they have all been topics in previous episodes of the Insurance Covered podcast. So, to conclude, perhaps Heath was the first to see the potential of insurance. Perhaps he wasn't. But either way, that potential has been truly realised. The reality of the period from 1850 to 2023 is that insurance innovation, once started, becomes exponential. Everyone everywhere, all at once. Chapter 8. The Triumph of Lex Mercatoria. But before we get too excited, some context is needed. Because the extent to which insurance is genuinely everyone, everywhere, all at once, differs wildly from country to country. Each year, the Swiss Re-Institute produces a report called Sigma World Insurance, which provides a review of the last year and a prediction for the next. At the end of the report, it sets out a number of tables for insurance coverage in differing countries around the world. These tables have enormous quantities of stats for each country and are absolutely fascinating. I mean, in fact, they are beyond fascinating. They are hyper-nerd-tastic. I mean, they are brilliant. Anyway, you get the message. So, let's look at insurance penetration. Insurance penetration is defined as the total of premiums as a percentage of gross domestic product. So, in the United States, the figure for total premiums paid is equivalent to 11.6% of GDP. 
possibly because of all the health insurance that Americans have to purchase. In the United Kingdom, it is 10.5%, which is mostly made up of life insurance. At the top of the table for insurance penetration comes three small territories with low populations and huge business communities. So Hong Kong on 19%, Macau on 20.9% and the Cayman Islands on 23.2%. So almost a quarter of the Cayman Islands GDP. Incredible. But thereafter, the tale becomes far more mixed. Even within Europe, the percentage fluctuates massively. Denmark sits at the top on 10.9%. But in neighbouring Germany, it is just 5.9%, dropping down to 2.4% for Greece and just 0.8% for Ukraine, which adds another interesting dimension to the current war, the fact that there is so little insurance there. Of the 87 countries reviewed by the Swiss Re Institute, the countries with the lowest overall insurance saturation are Lebanon and Nigeria, both at just 0.4%. Of course, this brings into play interesting questions about how different cultures respond to insurance. Why, for example, do the British spend so much on life insurance? We spend 8.1% of GDP on life insurance, compared with Americans who spend only 2.6%, and New Zealanders who spend 0.8%. The only territories in the world who spend more than the UK on life insurance are Denmark, South Africa, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Macau, whose inhabitants spend a scarcely believable 19.1% on life insurance. So the everyone element of everyone everywhere all at once is still far from being truly realised. And in truth, it never will be, because the way in which a country's population interacts with insurance will depend upon that country's culture, economics and politics. Which brings us to the final period of our insurance story. In this meditation, we started the story in 1850. From 1850 to 1914, the narrative was of British-dominated international insurance. Then, from 1914 to 1973, we saw the reaction, national governments flexing their muscles, leading to the disintegration of the global insurance market, other than in some specialist lines and in reinsurance. Well, from 1973 onwards, we've seen the reaction to that. The period from 1973 has been one of ever-increasing globalisation, driven by the neoliberal revolution of free market capitalism. I've chosen 1973 as the start date for this final period, not just because it is exactly 50 years ago, but because that year marked the ultimate demise of the fixed exchange rate mechanism. From March 1973 the major currencies began to float against each other, which is why the pound now rises and falls on a daily basis against the euro and the dollar. 1973 also saw the oil crisis, and in many ways these two events heralded the modern period of boom and bust, of privatisation, of merger and acquisition, of deregulation, of competition, and of the liberalisation of the markets. 
free trade areas were created or developed around the world, including the transformation of the EEC, the European Economic Community, into the EU, the European Union. This period also saw the formation in 1995 of the World Trade Organization. In addition, the old ideological divide between communism and capitalist democracy was breached with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the economic reforms in China instigated by Deng Xiaoping. In economic terms, the world was once again becoming one. For insurers, this was perhaps the completion of the journey that had started in the 1300s. In its early days, the insurance community had developed a legal structure that was, in many ways, independent of any individual state. This legal structure was known as Lex Mercatoria, or Law Merchant, or Mercantile Law, or the Law of Merchants. It was this supranational form of governance that ensured that a marine insurance policy issued in Amsterdam was consistent with a policy issued in London, Hamburg, Boston, or anywhere else. Well, in many ways, the last 50 years can be seen as the triumph of Lex Mercatoria. Insurance companies have become global. Yes, they have headquarters in a particular country, but they see themselves as international, moving capital and pooling risk seamlessly from country to country. And nowhere is this development better exemplified than Bermuda. With supreme improbability, Bermuda, a tiny archipelago in the Atlantic with a combined area smaller than the island of Barra in the Outer Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland, has developed as a leading hub of insurance. Bermuda is the physical embodiment of Lex Mercatoria. And partly due to Bermuda, ever more inventive methods of risk management have been developed. Long-tail exposures are now packaged up and sold as natural catastrophe bonds and other insurance-linked securities. And of course, the process of globalisation has been aided and abetted by improved communication, which has rendered national borders irrelevant. In the 1800s, communication between an insurer in Britain and its foreign agencies took days or even weeks, which meant that those agencies had to be independent and make their own decisions. Whereas now, with satellites, the internet and video conferencing, insurers can strategize as one global entity. Of course, the interconnectedness of global capital means that a crisis in one place generates a crisis in all places. As such, the neoliberal world in which we live is a fragile one, a world of almost constant crisis. To name but a few that have particularly affected insurers, the asbestos litigation of the 1980s and 1990s, the dot-com crisis of 2000, the 9-11 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in New York in 2001, the banking crisis of 2008, the pandemic of 2020, and the current Ukraine war. But through all that, insurers and reinsurers have survived and largely grown. Where a risk is too great, such as perhaps terrorism or earthquake, private insurers have worked with governments to develop a solution. And because insurers and reinsurers insure the whole of human endeavour, it is insurers and reinsurers who collectively have the knowledge and the expertise to protect us through our future crises. And they will do so 
as they have done for the last 150 years with innovation and imagination for the benefit of everyone, everywhere, all at once. Thank you for listening to this sixth meditation. In the next meditation, entitled Towards a Philosophy of Insurance, we will re-examine the stories that have been told in the first six meditations, and we will consider whether there are themes from these stories that can be developed into something approaching a philosophical understanding of insurance. Can we begin to grasp the fundamental truths at the heart of insurance and how it influences human society? Is there a story behind the story of insurance? Here's an extract to whet your appetite. Because insurance is also a system largely kept from sight, hidden beneath the surface of the real world, a system in which thousands of insurers pool money from millions of insureds through a network of tens of millions of contracts, and in which money is moved from those with surplus to those that have need. And in the process, both the insureds and the insurers are made stronger, more resistant to the fragility and fear of our everyday lives and more resilient to the future. And insurers, through a system of competition and cooperation, create symbiotic relationships of co-insurance, excess layers, reinsurance and retrocession, adding layer upon layer of complexity and ever greater levels of collaboration. And throughout, every insured and every insurer seeks to advance their own interest. Yet somehow, this creates a system which, through the beneficial selfishness of strangers, benefits all. Insurance truly is a remarkable thing. I hope you'll join us on Monday for the next Meditation on Insurance and Society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>